0: Welcome to episode 3 of the second season of the Books of My Life podcast. I'm your host, al Bastani, Arts and Culture Editor at The National. In this podcast, I explore the roles that books and stories have played in the lives of a number of influential figures, spanning a range of backgrounds. But before we start, make sure to subscribe and follow Books of My Life on your favorite podcast app to get all the new episodes as soon as they come out. I've always been enthralled with the world of history. The study of history is the study of human nature itself. Through the annals of history, we learn how to predict the future. In its chronicles, we see the very same patterns and forces that govern our own lives today. For history is not just the study of what happened when. It is the act of piecing together a disparate past through the combined powers of analysis, physical evidence, and deduction. In many ways, I've always found it very similar to journalism, In essence, both require an element of storytelling and an element of critical investigation. When working on my own book about the Roman Emperor Nero, I realized how hard it was to not just relay the most accurate narrative of events, but also to bring the world of ancient Rome to life. The truly great history writer walks a fine line between dramatization and documentation, a balance that Indian author Shrabani Basu has mastered admirably. Shrabani famously wrote Victoria and Abdul, a historical novel that was later adapted into a feature film. Somewhat of a sleuth herself, she also penned a fascinating account of Arthur Conan Doyle's efforts to rescue a Parsi lawyer from injustice. We discussed the remarkable correlations between history and journalism, and why the best history writers have to be both. So I've, I also share a love of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've written for several history magazines. I actually wrote a book about the Emperor Nero.
1: All right. Um, And
0: that's something that strikes me about... So whenever I meet other people who are passionate about history, I'm always interested to get to the root of why and where that kind of first began. In your case, were there any books that you read when you were growing up that left an impact?
1: Um, I don't think it was the books, but it was the... My father was a great traveller. So I think we went to, you know, just visited places. And whenever I'd go to an old fort or something, even as a kid, I mean, there was something that would, you know, make my sort of give me goosebumps just thinking of the stories about that place uh, I was very young uh, well, first went to uh, the Delhi fort yeah uh, you know I did Dalal Kila which is the red fort in Delhi and they used to do this sound and light exhibition and it was fascinating just listening to those you know hearing those stories and thinking of the troops marching in and everything that happened uh, so I think there was always a fascination and then as I grew up uh, You know, one read more books. (laughs) But it started as a child, and I think it was the historical buildings and the wherever I visited.
0: But I think the importance of literature such as your own is the ability to actually bring those places and those Mm -hmm. periods to life Mm -hmm. through these. And you have all these strands of intrigue and kind of nobility and, and royals and power. And what are some of your literary influences where those aspects of your work come from?
1: Well, literary influences. See, growing up in India, it was all the classics. We read a lot of the English classics, so Dickens was big. Uh, and then, as I you know grew up a little more, um, I ventured into the European classics. So, Russian classics were big for me. Mm-hmm. I loved Tolstoy, Chekhov. I mean, just the, the scale of these stories. You know, the history they covered, the movements they covered. Um, they, they always fascinated me. So give me a big, chunky historical book and I will just dive in and I love it. So th- those were big influences. Um, but of course, I mean, that was literature as well. For me, um, as a journalist, you know, we're talking about the sort of road I went down, which is uncovering unknown stories. I think that came to me because I chose journalism as a career. And um, then I was posted in London. And um, I was always looking for the diff- different stories. As a foreign correspondent, you want to get something that others don't. You know, that's different. It's not just the political or the economic stories. They were there, of course, but uh, just the other stories. And I did look for stories involving Indians in UK. And uh, slowly, you know, just started on a trail of finding these fantastic stories. And I got involved with Indians in the First World War, in the Second World War royalty just led me down a path where i was just looking for different stories and the books flew out of those
0: one of the things that i find most interesting in terms of the relationship between being a historian and being a journalist is that you have to employ a lot of the same techniques mm-hmm. and and the mentality is quite similar in that as a journalist when you come across a piece of information you have to want, assess well, where is this information coming from? What mm-hmm. might their motives be? Exactly. Uh, what's the nature of? What is the source? At the same time, historically speaking, mm-hmm. there is a lot of bad history. There of are a course, lot of bad histories of where people don't yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah. So, I think. Do you think that there's a benefit to being able to bring the two together? I
1: think so. I think. I think I was really helped by being a journalist and being the person I am, which is a very curious journalist. Uh, so things, you know, just the uh, Victoria and Abdul came out of literally um, a little bit I knew about the curry. And then just seeing his portraits in Osborne House, Abdul Karim's portraits, and saying, this man doesn't look like a servant. (laughs) You know, he's painted like a nawab, uh, which is a a nobleman. He's painted in red and gold and he's holding a book. And that's not the sort of servant, you know, quote unquote, paintings you do. Uh, So I was curious. And then I, you know, wanted to know more about him. And then that led me on that journey, which then produced Victorian Abdul after four years. So... It's the little things that stand out. Maybe there'll be a little piece in a newspaper. It's a small, what we used to call in my days, a foray story, you know, the briefs. And it'll be about something that is different. And then I just want to follow it up. And um, so journalism really helps me because I also get out, like to get out of the archives. The archives are a big part of my life, finding the sources, various sources. Uh, But I also like to, as a journalist, go to the spot, as it were. So I have to be... I have to follow the trail of my story. I want to stand in the field that Arthur Conan Doyle stood. Uh, You know, this is a reference to my book, The Parsi Lawyer, Mystery of the Parsi Lawyer. I want to stand in that field. I want to see where the killings happened. Um, With Victoria and Abdul, I want to go to Balmoral. I want to see those royal palaces. I want to see Abdul's house that she built for him. You know, I want to see his grave. (laughs) So I just have to dig these out because these are not known Nobody knew where he was buried. I had to find Abdul Karim's grave in Agra. It took me four days, and with the help, I will say, of a local journalist, because I said nobody else can help me. Only a local journalist who's interested in history can help me. And uh, yeah, he did. And we, you know, four days later, we found his grave. So it was. I think it's a combination of both.
0: <laughs> what were some of the most interesting things you uncovered about his life?
1: Abdul Karim. Yes. Oh my God, there was so much. It was like I was on this roller coaster, you know. There were moments when I didn't know what I was doing. It took four years to find this story, and I started with no, with the knowledge that his letters, that all the letters had been burnt. So you know, it's not a great start. But as I, you know, researched, I read her, uh, her journals, Queen Victoria's journals. Uh, I read Queen Victoria's Hindustani journals. And I had no idea that Queen Victoria learned Urdu so late in her life. I knew she learned a few phrases, you know, which everybody does. I thought they'd just be, you know, a little phrase book. 13 volumes were produced in front of me in the Royal Archives Library. No one had touched them. And these 13 volumes, one for every year they spent together, there was it was like treasure. And then, of course, I went on and uh, then I found Abdul Karim's diary, which... Would have been destroyed, and it hadn't been. It had been taken by him to India, and then after partition, after you know, after he died, there was partition. So much happened. He, had, some somebody in the family, took it to Karachi, to Pakistan, and that's where I found it. So it was like going on a trail and just discovering things, and uncovering things, and you know, unpeeling things also. Uh, discovering more about Queen Victoria, discovering more about Abdul Karim. Uh, so it was quite an adventure.
0: And you touched upon earlier Arthur Conan Doyle, mm-hmm. and there's almost a Sherlock Holmes streak to you. Um, it, did you read Sherlock Holmes growing up? Oh,
1: yes. Who didn't? <laughs> I mean, I absolutely love the Holmes books. I mean, my, my sort of guilty guilty pleasures on a Sunday afternoon is just watching a matinee with the old Holmes, you know, Jeremy Brett as Holmes, or watching a Christie. I mean, I love crime fiction as well. So there's a broad range of um, books that I enjoy, and um, yeah, I mean, I loved loved Arthur Conan Doyle. I read his biography, and that's where he writes that he took up this case of George Adlidge. And to me, it was like, wow, <laughs> the only case he personally investigates, wearing the hat of Sherlock Holmes, is to do with an Indian lawyer. <laughs> it was like a no brainer for me. You know, I had to find out who is this guy. You know, what did he do, and then the whole case. Uh, so yes, yeah, so I sort of went on a trail of Arthur Conan Doyle <laughs> when he was on this trail to uncover this mystery. And then I'm on his trail. So yeah, it
0: was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and the mystery is an incredibly, um, much more international genre than people realize. For example, in India at the moment, there's a great resurgence, or there's a great popularity of, of mystery literature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in China, there's a history of, of mystery literature. Um, is this something that, have you explored any of the other traditions from around the world?
1: Well, I think, um, I haven't read a lot of uh, Indian crime fiction, I have to admit. The only ones I, the detective stories were, I'm a Bengali, um, so the detective stories are very popular in Bengal. Uh, So Satyajit Ray, the filmmaker, he made a series based on his own book on these detective stories. So that was my introduction to the uh, sort of Indian genre of detective writing. And he had a detective very much based on, you know, the home style. Uh, but that—that uh, that was all I read. They were called Peluda's Mysteries, um, and uh, I haven't read the others. But I can imagine that there is—you know—everybody loves a whodunit. You know? And for me, this one, a whodunit in a village in England, <laughs> set in the—you <laughs> know—early turn of the 20th century. Arthur Conan Doyle figures in it as—you know—the real person. I mean, what was what's not to get me going into this?
0: and why do you think people are so drawn to um historical literature or period literature what do you think it is about i mean obviously it's fascinating for a historian Mm -hmm. to be drawn into these worlds but they they do have such broad appeal when they're when they're well written Mm -hmm.
1: i think yeah i think it's the characters isn't it i mean in every historical even if it's a fiction or it's you know you'll have some character he could be villainous he could be wonderful but you know, it's it's these characters that drive the story in a way. And then there's all the surrounding, you know, all the intrigues. I mean, if you do things on royal courts, my goodness, it's just intrigue and intrigue and more intrigue. And, um, yeah, I mean, I love those conspiracies and the, everything that goes on in the background. Victoria Abdul has a lot of it because a lot of my research was done by reading the diaries of the household. Right. And her personal physician, Victoria's personal physician, uh, kept a detailed diary, so a lot of the book is actually based on his diaries too, apart yeah. from everything else. So you know there were a lot of sources, but the household was really important because what they say about Abdul was, you know, really crucial to see how prejudiced they were, and the language they use about him, everything they plot, they keep plotting to bring him down. Uh, so these plots that are in the book are from from the doctor's diary. Yeah.
0: That's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the most interesting things in terms of like sociological or historically speaking that people can learn from these diaries of these characters around, but the real historical characters around yeah Abdullah and Victoria?
1: Yeah, well, we can learn that they were very upper class, very elite. I mean, they were obviously all from the upper class, but they also were very elite, very closed clique, um and they absolutely hated this outsider. <laughs> Um, They were racist, you know, absolutely racist. uh, And they would call all the Indians the Black Brigade until Queen Victoria said the word black will not be used to describe the Indians. So that itself was again revealing to me. This is Queen Victoria. You associate her with the empire. You know, this is the height of empire. And here's a queen writing a memo telling all her household off. So these were things about her character that came up, you know, to me as I was researching. And uh, well, they are there in the book because yeah, she got a few brownie points from me <laughs> for really standing up to it. And I think in some ways she was actually ahead of her time, which um, if you look back now, I mean, you know, there still isn't a person of ethnic origin uh, yeah, as part of the close royal household. They are still entirely white. <laughs> And, yeah. you know, we've seen what's been happening. <laughs> Let's not go down that field.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's really fascinating because, like you say, you, you do look back at the roots of, of some of these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering, when, when you're piecing the stories together and the characters together and their motivations together, how difficult is it to actually, I mean, what is your process for, obviously you have access to their diaries, so you're reading their thoughts. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, how difficult is it to construct the characters Mm-hmm. Within the works of yeah, of so fiction
1: or... yeah, so again, I don't do fiction. It'd probably be easier if I did in some so, ways, yeah. though, um, you know, but in nonfiction, for me, it is really reconstructing the person, what does he look like from newspaper reports, from his photographs, from what others say about him., uh, I know Abdul was six feet tall. I know he had a soft voice. So I can, in my mind, I'm looking at his picture and I am visualizing this man. And so, I have to get into his head when I write about him and through what others say, what he writes in his own diaries, I am getting into his head in a way and I can, you know, put it out there.
0: I guess, yeah, sorry, what I mean to ask is what is the, the crucial skill to the novelization of historical events?
1: Right. I think, I think the word they use it what, narrative
0: nonfiction yes, yes, nowadays.
1: Yes. <laughs> you have all these, I said, <laughs> oh, that's a new term. I was told that at some literature festival. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, as a journalist, I would anyway have a narrative style. Yes. So uh, that is me. That is my natural self-writing. I'm not doing something that I have been taught to do. It is what I do. Yes. Um, So if I'm describing a scene of revolt, (laughs) you know, where the household is saying we're going to go on strike and I have the details from the diary, I have pretty vivid details, I can just reconstruct this scene from that diary and write it up. Yeah, Uh, but I also read a lot of newspaper reports. So I think the gossip columns, the small things, the weather—what was it like that day? You know, just going into the British Library, looking at microfilm issues of certain days, and you'll see the weather. If they haven't mentioned the weather in the diary, then I would like to see what the weather was like (laughs) that day. So I think all of it makes your story. There's just little details, Um, and yeah, newspaper reporters always play a big role. I I like to see what they say. Even in um, Mystery of the Parsi Lawyer, for me, while the trial is being covered, it was a real case of miscarriage of justice and outright racism. And the reports in the papers just told me, you know, obviously how racist they are, the way they describe George Adalji, is Oriental, with this, you know, this is the crime he would have done just based on his features and his looks. And uh, so that reveals a whole world of what they're thinking. What is the influence? The jury members would have been reading these newspapers. And uh, their influence, you know, it took them 20 minutes to, dis- to pronounce George Adalji guilty. So what are the influences going And Yeah, you get, you get a feel of what's going on through a newspaper report.
0: <laughs> it's something that I really struggled with when I was working on my book about Nero. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at the various histories, some of them are filled with the most scandalous information, mm-hmm. and when you're when you're when it comes to okay, well, you have this balance of I want it to be historically sound, but mm-hmm. I also want it to be engaging. Mm-hmm. A lot of writers tend to just go, I'll just include that as part <laughs> of the story, but it's really hard to try to to decide what to rule out, mm-hmm. what not to rule out, especially with history, where like you say, sometimes you're working with there's only one side of history has been preserved. Yeah, yeah. At least like you say, with when you have newspapers, you can kind of read yeah. into them. Mm-hmm. Some, sometimes I think some of the driest historical records, mm-hmm. the most seemingly dry historical records, actually contain the most...
1: You can find something, yeah, absolutely. So I take a long time to write my books. Each one is like three, four years. And for me, finding the little detail is interesting all and crucial to the book, actually, to bring the color that we talk about, you know, the narrative style. and the. Um, so I will take time. It might take me two weeks uh, just sitting and pouring through things, which look extremely dry. And which probably bore me to tears, but somewhere I will find something. And then, oh, it's joyful when you do that. And (laughs) it gives you a clue. Now, somewhere tucked away, um, I found, I wrote a book about the First World War and Indians in the First World War. And it's a story about these, you know, illiterate peasants who signed up and who went and fought on the Western Front in the trenches. You know, one and a half million, what, uh, volunteered from India. And we knew nothing about them. So I followed their stories. And I found such interesting details in something as dry as the hospital files that were kept in the British Library, uh, because they recorded so many different things that, you know, then I could just bring out in my book uh, fascinating stories. There's a story about Sukha, and he, was, uh, he wasn't a soldier, but he was just a, he was a cleaner, he was a sweeper. And In the caste system in India, he was put on the lowest rung, you know, so he was literally considered, in quotes, untouchable. And Sukha goes to the Western Front, and Sukha fights, and then Sukha is injured, and he's sent to a hospital back in England, and then Sukha dies, but that wasn't the end of the story, because I found Sukha's story in the hospital files, because they didn't know what to do with him. They said, they asked the Hindus to cremate him, and the Hindus said, we won't, because he was untouchable. And they went, took him to the Muslim side and they said, bury him. The Muslim, the, the the imam of the mosque said, no, he's not a Muslim, we can't bury him. So Sukha was in no man's land, you know, rejected by his own country. And these little stories came out. And then he was buried, the local vicar of the church. He says, Sukha died for us and I will bury him. And so he's buried in that church, a very beautiful church in in Hampshire, in England, and he has the biggest gravestone because the whole, uh, the village, the parish just contributed to his gravestone and, you know, there were just a few people there for his burial, but he has the biggest gravestone in that graveyard (laughs) and it's a lovely story. So I wrote about Sukha that, you know, he finally did, people do know him now and there's no, there's no image of him, no photograph, but all I know is where he's because his life story is written on that gravestone. And of course, he's recorded as dead by the Commonwealth war graves. So he reconstruct that. And now people go to Sukha's grave and they put flowers there and they send me pictures, which is all really, it's really nice. Yeah. You just feel, okay, this man died. He was probably in India. He was looked down on because he was considered untouchable. Here he lay there. I mean, what a life for poor Sukha. Yeah. And, uh, but finally in death, you know, people now know him. Yes. There's something to this 24. Five-year-old who died there. So, it is at the end of the day. It is very rewarding when you find something, and this took two weeks going through hospital files, as you know, as sort of boring and administrative as that. So,
0: do you ever have issues getting access to them?
1: Um, well, luckily in the UK, uh, when the British Library is open to all, uh, and uh, I well, I consulted a lot of libraries, various various sources. Uh, for Victoria and Abdul, I needed permission because uh, the Windsor archives, the Royal Archives, are private property. Yes. So you have to apply for permission. I was lucky. I was allowed <laughs> and given full access, I must say, absolutely full access. And not just that, because some of it is in Urdu. Um, I said, Look, you've never opened this and you don't know what it is. I mean, is this man saying, Bring down the house? I mean, we don't know because I can't read Urdu. Yeah. Uh, so I said I needed photocopied. I'm going to go get translate it translated, and uh, I'll let you know. You'll have the transcript. So <laughs> they were they were very good about it. Yeah, and now they're really proud. They send that journal out everywhere, uh, along with Queen's Journal. So the Hindustani journals travels to various museums, and they always open it on the pages that I've actually used in my book, which are, <laughs> you know, really funny phrases like "hold me tight" or. Um, she's learning that in Urdu, by the way <laughs> Dictated by Abdul <laughs> So, all things like, you know The tea is not hot enough Or the egg is not no good Things like that, you know Funny, funny little phrases They open the book to those pages in the exhibition So, yeah I think they're quite happy that all these were translated as well
0: <laughs> Do you think those are, all the, those are all considered the essentials? The tea is not hot enough yeah. <laughs> yeah, poor lady, she's
1: the queen She didn't get good tea her egg was never boiled properly. <laughs> uh, but, but there was all who would have known, but there was always praise for Abdul.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to the end of this episode of Books of My Life, season two. I hope you found it as insightful as I did. If you're interested in hearing more conversations like this, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Gami, or your favorite podcasting platform. Next week, I sit down with explorer Benedict Allen. Stay tuned for more captivating conversations and gripping stories. This episode was produced by Arthur Edison and Dua Farid. I'm your host, Harith al bastani Thanks for listening.